Well, it is so good to see you all here this morning. We are in this series called Love Thy Neighbor, and we've got one more week after today to finish it up as our summer series. And we've been exploring different ways that we can be a better neighbor. And uh, this morning we are recognizing and uh, honoring those who are first responders, those who put their lives on the line, those whose expertise and dedication and sacrifice make our neighborhoods, our community, our congregation, and our personal lives safer. And you may, uh, you may sometimes go unnoticed, you may sometimes go unappreciated, but we want you to know that you are a vital part of our lives and we were very, very grateful. You've likely heard these quotes before, but they bear repeating. First responders run toward rather than away from an emergency. And the first responders face what we fear. Sometimes I know that first responders get called into situations and circumstances that appear to be one thing, but when everything is said and done, something quite different emerges. I want you to hear a story from Eric and Leanna Powell that began as a crisis response, but ended in an act of compassion. Watch this. I own a funeral home here in town, and then besides that, I'm also a deputy coroner. May 1st was a, was a day that started like any other, where uh, I was at work at the funeral home. Uh, I got a call from our dispatch, county dispatch, that I needed to be on a coroner's call. All they told me was that it was a, a baby that, that was dead. What we found was a, a baby girl that was about 26 weeks gestation, had been abandoned by her mother, and had been dead for a, a good amount of time before anybody discovered her. Uh, it was in an apartment that she'd been evicted from. And from there, the, the landlord found the baby and called for the coroner. To hear of a child that wasn't wanted, to hear of one that was abandoned, not knowing the circumstances behind it, just really broke my heart. I know as a funeral director that if there's no parent or legal guardian that's going to step up and take care of it, the county or the trustee would take care of it. Who knows what would happen at that point? So I told Leanna, if we can, I would like to be able to do something for this baby, you know, as, as a final remembrance for her. I said, tell me what. what. What do we need to do? I was ready for the, the many steps through the process that it took us through, the emotional journey as a couple that bonded us together over the loss of a child that we never saw breathe. I talked to the coroner about it, and she, through the different channels, was able to get the rights of the baby uh, signed over to us. Uh, we gave her a name, Sarah Elizabeth Grace Powell, and we had a very nice service with Tom for her. We had her casket there, flowers, memorial cards, beautiful embroidered handkerchiefs. She's buried peacefully next to a beautiful pasture in a cemetery. It was a beautiful service, and I don't think there was anybody there that didn't have a tear in their eye. We never imagined telling this story again. You know, we just thought it was the right thing to do. We would have a service for her and, and uh, give her a proper burial, and and that would be it. So, But it, it's amazing what somebody, like she said, that, that we never met. We never saw take a breath. Biologically, she's not ours, uh, but she's, she's impacted our life. She's impacted 
um, other people's lives. I think there's even um, some people that we've shared the story with that may not know where exactly their relationship with with Jesus is, but I think it's something that they definitely are reevaluating on what they believe. And there's other things that, that are going to come out of, unfortunately, her tragedy uh, that are going to be good for uh, years to come. We've been in talks with a lady that's in a similar situation with us in Marion County who has made an initiative to put safe haven baby boxes in fire stations around the state, country, world. We would love to see a safe haven baby box in Monroe County. A safe haven baby box is a box that's placed inside a 24-hour monitored place such as a hospital, a fire station, police station. It's usually on the outside of the building without any video monitoring on the outside of the box um, so that someone can surrender a child without having to face someone. We've also been in talks about cuddle cots. At the hospital, cuddle cot for stillborn babies so they can stay with the families longer in the, in the birthing room. I will go through the training the end of August, 1st of September, and become a full, full CASA. We've been asked to share Sarah's story at their banquet this year. So we're going to continue to spread the story of Sarah and the joy that it brings us to share and make a difference in our community, whether it be our own children, other children, but all lives are important. First responding makes an incredible difference. And can I say this? If you know of somebody who is dealing with that kind of a decision where they have a child that they can't care for uh, or what are the circumstance, we'll help. Uh, we're not here maybe 24 hours a day in this building, but during the times that we're here, we'll help. We'll find a place. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get the legal um, information that needs to happen to take care of that child. Just don't let a child go without the help they need. We'll be glad to help. Now, you may not be a firefighter or a police officer, an EMT or a nurse or a doctor or somebody who's involved in first responding this morning. Uh, you, you may not feel like you put your life on the line for the community, but God intends for each of us to be in his family, spiritual first responders. And I want to take you to a, a person's life this morning in the New Testament, Acts chapter 9, that I think may be one of the first, first responders we meet from a spiritual standpoint of view. But to understand his role, we need to kind of uh, understand the background, the chain of events that triggered his involvement. So we need to go back before Acts chapter 9, and we pick up the story with a man by the name of Saul. And from a believer's standpoint of view, Saul was a despicable man. Saul was a part of the legalistic branch of Judaism called the Pharisees. He professed a zeal and a passion for God in the Old Testament scriptures. And, and yes, Saul did have a lot to be proud of in his life. He was a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin. His namesake was that of the very first king of Israel. And he was mentored by one of the most respected Jewish scholars of his day, a man by the name of Gamaliel. He appears to be a respected leader during his time in Jerusalem. And since he speaks of voting for a Christian's death, we assume that he was probably a part of the Sanhedrin court, the high court, the supreme court of the nation of Israel. He was brilliant. 
He was aloof, and he was determined to stamp out this new movement that preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ and him as Lord and Savior. Saul would stop at nothing to accomplish his goal. And I've always wondered when I read the story of Saul, how does one profess their love for God and affirm the murder of other people all in the same breath? Saul encountered a man by the name of Stephen, a godly man who was preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ and was stoned for it. At that day and time, as I understand it, if somebody was to be stoned, they were taken to the precipice of a hill or a cliff. Their hands were bound behind them. They were thrown over the cliff. And if the fall did not kill them, then stones were pelted down upon them or boulders were rolled off the cliff until the person died. Now, it was supposed to happen that a person, before they were thrown off, got one last opportunity to repent and change their mind. We don't know if Stephen was given that chance or not. The Bible doesn't say. But we do know that Stephen's last words were to affirm Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And his final statement was this, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Words that echoed the words of Jesus from the cross. And as Luke records the story in Acts chapter 7 and 8, there's only one name, one individual's name that appears in the story, and it appears twice. And it is the name, as you might guess, of Saul. In the first place, it said he held the garments or the cloaks of those who actually cast the stones. And the other thing it says was he's the one that put his stamp of approval or his stamp of authority on the deed. By his own admission, Paul went from synagogue to synagogue, exposing the Christians and punishing them, imprisoning them, and ordering their deaths. And while there's no evidence in Scripture, folks, that Saul personally took a life, he certainly devised the covert plans that made such executions possible. And when he'd exhausted his work in Jerusalem, he took his persecution on the road with letters and blessings from the high priest in Jerusalem and accompanied by a contingent of the police force of the uh, temple and the Sanhedrin while he headed off to Damascus in Syria to do the same thing. And since Saul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, why he would not have walked with the officers, the policemen, that were accompanying him. Uh, they would have been of an inferior social standing, and so Saul would have walked ahead of them on the road. Now, if you took the journey from Jerusalem to Damascus, it would take about a week. It was 140 miles, and on foot, seven days would get you there, give or take. As they came toward the end of the week, as they neared the city of Damascus. One day at noon, Saul's life changed in the most dramatic way imaginable. He met the risen Christ. Not like Mary met him outside of the garden tomb. Not like Thomas met him in the upper room and showed him his hands and his side. Not like Peter when they were by the seashore and Jesus asked the question, do you love me? No, this was an encounter of power. Saul was struck down by an incredible light, like thousands upon thousands of camera flashes going off at once, but not just a flash, a continual ray of, of light, the most intense light, a blinding light. And Saul was instantly blinded by it. This was no ordinary light, but the divine glory of God, making the flash of a nuclear explosion dull and dim by comparison. 
It was reminiscent of the light at the transfiguration. It should have put Paul, Saul in mind of the uh, description of God's brilliant glory that filled the temple when the temple was finally completed. Now, in the New Testament, we are told that God is light. Light, brilliant, perfect light. In him is no darkness or the shifting of shadows. And so on this road to persecution, Saul came face to face with the risen Christ, the Prince of Peace, the light of the world himself. Saul couldn't see, but he could hear. And this is where we pick up the story in Acts 9, verse 4. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what to do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now, according to Acts 26, the words that Saul heard were in Aramaic. The men may not have understood them. They heard the sound, but they saw nothing. And isn't is God, you know, God has a sense of humor. Uh, I really believe that. Here in this passage, you know, Saul is walking ahead of these guys because they are his social inferiors. Now, all of a sudden, he is so blind, he cannot see. Uh, and, and these social inferiors have to lead him into the city by his hand. I think God's kind of chuckling about this moment in time. And the man who had thought he had such a clear vision of what God wanted him to do was now utterly blind. And I'm talking dark cave blind, the kind of blindness and darkness that you can't even see the hand in front of your face. And he remained that way for three days. For three days. Oh, people, I love the three-day stories that we find in Scripture. Just as the disciples waited in the dark unknown for three days after the crucifixion, crucifixion for God to reveal his will, so now Saul is in the dark unknown, waiting the three days to find out what God would do with him. And just as Thomas seemed blind to the hope of our Lord's resurrection, so Saul is blind to the hope of his own restored sight. Saul didn't eat or drink for three whole days. He was shaken to the core. You know what I think he's thinking? You know, when, when, when sight is removed, all you have is, is your thoughts at that point, what you hear and what your thoughts are. I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, but I'm wondering if Saul wasn't going over and over in his mind that moment when Stephen was stoned. Because in his mind, he now knows Stephen was right. Stephen was preaching the resurrection. Stephen was the one who was doing God's will. Saul wasn't. If ever Saul needed a spiritual first responder, it was at this moment. His whole life was on the line. Well, in another part of Damascus, a devout follower of Christ named Ananias was going about his daily routine when he too encountered the God of ages. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Ananias isn't Ananias the guy in Acts chapter 5 that died in the church service because he lied to God? Yes, Ananias is the guy that lied to God and died in the church service, making that one of the most phenomenal church services of history. But that's the bad Ananias. This is the good Ananias in Acts chapter 9. All right, two different guys, same name. 
And in Acts 9, verse 10, this is what we read. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. He said, Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. <laughs> now, the Bible doesn't make any breaks here. But I got to think, in this moment, there is a major pause in the conversation. Lord, Ananias answered, I've, I've heard many reports about this man. And all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Lord, are you sure you've got the right guy? Have you got me confused or him confused with somebody else? This is what I think must be going on in, in Ananias' mind. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, I believe that Ananias is one of the great unsung heroes of the New Testament. When I get to heaven, Ananias is one of the guys I want to meet early on. I, I want to know what it was like to go and, and, and meet this guy face-to-face -face who was the most terroristic person in the life of the church. I mean, how would you feel this morning if God compelled you to approach an MS-13 gang and give them the gospel of Jesus Christ? I remember the Manson family cult of the late 60s and the grotesque murders planned and executed by Charles Manson. I can't imagine being sent to talk to the Manson cult about Jesus Christ. Poor Ananias. I don't think we realize how frightening and unnerving this would have been for him. You talk about a step of faith. This is a major step of faith. Every fiber in his being would have been shouting to him not to go. It was totally unreasonable, illogical, and irrational. But his faith, his faith was stronger than his fear. So he went boldly and obediently. In verse 17, this is where the story picks up. So Ananias went. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again, and he got up and was baptized. Okay, now, people, don't miss this. Don't miss this. If anyone in history could have claimed that his experience was more important than any sacred ordinance in the ancient church. I suspect it would be Saul. I mean, here is a man who has spent the last three days in utter darkness because he had personally encountered the living God, the light of the world. He's been fasting and praying for these entire three days. Now he has experienced a miracle, the restoration of his sight by the power of the same living God. If anyone could have justified skipping out on baptism, it was Saul, but he didn't. Let me read from his own words about that moment. In Acts 22, he shares his personal testimony before he's taken into custody to go to prison. Pick up the story in verse 13. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Isn't that a great question? I love the boldness of Ananias. What are you waiting for? Get up, do the right thing. And Saul 
did. He didn't wait. What are you waiting for? What excuse could you possibly offer that would exceed what Saul had experienced? Would not the same invitation be given to you? What are you waiting for? Get up. Be baptized. Follow Jesus Christ. Well, there's a couple valuable truths that I want to hit, just highlight for a couple moments that come out of this story. And, and the first one is simply this. We've got to deal with this problem of pride. Now, our English word pride has more than one meaning. It's one of those Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of words. Uh, the bright side describes one who finds satisfaction, delight, and joy in someone or something else. Like, I take pride in my family, or I take pride in my work, or I take pride in my house. You know, those kinds of things. That's a good kind of pride. But there's a dark side to pride. It is descriptive of one who is arrogant, conceited, smug, egotistical, self-centered, self-consumed, superior, and haughty. It is the person who says, I don't need God. I can handle things on my own. That's the negative kind of pride. That's the kind of pride that is condemned in Scripture. Why was Saul so driven to persecute and stamp out the church, folks? I mean, after all, there is no Christian that had done anything personally to attack Saul. The problem was Saul's pride. He was proud of his heritage. He was proud of his intellect. He was proud of his leadership role. He was proud of his moral character. And in his mind, Saul was the one who had to defend God. Can I tell you, God does not need us to defend him. God just wants us to follow him. And that was the problem with Saul. Saul was going to defend God, but that wasn't what God needed from Saul. Someone wisely put it this way, pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. I also like what Andrew Murray wrote. He said, the truth is this, the pride, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. And of course, we have that marvelous passage from the book of Proverbs Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In the summer of 1986, two ships collided in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia. 398 souls were lost in that collision, which could have easily been avoided. The problem? Pride. For 45 minutes before the collision, both of the Russian captains of those two vessels knew they were on a collision course with another vessel. But neither one of them wanted to be the first one to change course. When they finally decided to do so, it was too late and a collision was unavoidable. 398 souls lost due to pride. It really is destructive. Thankfully, on the road to Damascus, Saul traded his pride for a godly passion, a passion to see people of all races and cultures find new hope in Jesus Christ. Can I ask you, what stands between you and committed service to Christ? Is your pride greater than your faith? You know, throughout Scripture, God often changed the names of leaders in the Bible, and Saul is no exception. By the 13th chapter of Acts, we are no longer reading, him, reading about him as Saul. We are reading about him as Paul. You see, the Saul of this story has become the great apostle Paul to the Gentiles. Now, this is not insignificant. The name Saul, while it rhymes with Paul in the English, is, is not a close relative in meaning. 
The name Saul means somebody who's in demand. Saul would have taken that to heart and did. The name Paul means little, little. For the rest of his life, Paul lived with a reminder that you got to keep pride in check. Here's the other thing. It's the surprising nature of God. Do you realize that God is full of surprises? No one in his right mind would have chosen Saul to become the great gospel preacher to the Gentiles. I mean, would you pick Kim Jong-un to teach the fifth grade boys Sunday school class here? Of course you wouldn't. But God is, well, he often surprises us with his direction. Once his heart and life were changed, Paul took three long and arduous missionary journeys, reaching the Gentile world like no one else in history. Of the 27 New Testament books that we have to read and study, Paul wrote clearly 13 of them. He endured beatings, stonings, whippings, a shipwreck, a day and a night in the open sea, the bite of a poisonous snake, ridicule, mockery, and humiliation. He was imprisoned more than once and was executed by being beheaded. We don't know how the end came for Paul. We don't know what his last words were. I don't think history or tradition records them. I, but I got to wonder. I got to wonder. When, when, when Paul is being ready to be beheaded, did he think of Stephen? Were his last words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Augustine said the church owes Paul to the prayer of Stephen. Do you realize that the very foundation stone of the conversion of the greatest evangelist the world has ever seen began with the prayer and the death of Stephen. Who will be in heaven because of your grace and prayers? For whom are you praying who needs to find Jesus Christ? Are your prayers those of a first responder? And how about Ananias? <laughs> I'd have sent Peter or John or somebody with a little bit of background and apostolic authority, but no. God chooses a relatively unknown but devout believer who in his wildest dreams could never have imagined coming face to face with the biggest terrorists in church history. And here's another surprise. As for the brave Ananias, last time we ever read about the man. Isn't that amazing? This one shining moment and he disappears from church history. Now, I'm convinced that Ananias remained faithful, but this was, this was the moment God was raising him up to fulfill. And what a moment it was. There would be no Apostle Paul without Ananias. God may send you to do something great or something simple. Both jobs are needed in the kingdom. When I was a teenager, my, my home preacher frequently shared this little bit of poetry. Don't worry if your job is small or your reward is few. Remember that the mighty oak was once a nut like you. <laughs> now, now, there's great truth in that bit of humor. There is no unimportant job in the kingdom. Don't be surprised if God calls you to do something simple. Some of you may feel just like an acorn. You don't feel like the mighty oak. You just feel like an acorn. I'm telling you, God uses acorns and he uses oaks. God often begins with the acorn and makes an oak-like moment out of it. So here at Sherwood Oaks, we want all of us acorns to come together to be a place that makes a difference for all the ages. You never know when God will have an Ananias size or a Paul size job for you to do. Regardless, just do it with all your heart. And when I read this story, 
I'm also reminded of grace, second chances. Now, only God would choose a renegade like Saul and give him a second chance and transform his heart and mind into the great evangelist. But I can't change a heart. You can't change a heart. Ananias couldn't change a heart. But I am equally impressed with Ananias. Now, you may, have, you may have just kind of glossed right over this when we were reading through the text. But did you notice, did you notice that when Ananias enters the room, there's the great terrorist Saul, puts his hand on his shoulder and says, Brother Saul. You're talking about words of affirmation, uplifting words, a heart a heartfelt embrace with words. I mean, I, I might have gone in and said, enemy Saul, bad guy Saul, treacherous Saul, despicable Saul, but brother Saul? Hearing those words from the lips of Ananias must have given Saul a hope that better things were still ahead. Who in your life needs a second chance? Who needs to hear from you such words of affirmation and acceptance that there's better things still ahead? Well, let me close with this. How many of you recognize the name of Charles Colson, Chuck Colson, uh, of Watergate fame and then prison fellowship fame? Most, most of you in here are familiar with that. Okay, how many of you recognize the name Tom Phillips? Let me see your hands if you recognize the name Tom Phillips. Okay, a couple hands out there. Most of us don't know much about Tom Phillips. On an August evening of 1973, Charles Colson was visiting in the home of Tom Phillips, who at that time was president of the Raytheon Company. Now, the whole Watergate scandal was looming. Things were really broiling at that point in time. And that evening, Tom shared with Charles Colson the gospel of Jesus Christ, shared about his faith, read from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, about pride, and then gave Colson the book to take with him. When the evening was done, Colson got to his car, but he couldn't drive away because he just erupted in tears. And Colson said, but the next day, but the, but the next day, I'd given my life to Christ. In 11 months from that time, Colson was sentenced and imprisoned for his role in the Watergate affair. Now, Charles Colson died back in 2012 and the kingdom lost a great warrior. But in 2008, he made this observation about that night, that night, and what happened the next morning. He said, from the next morning to this day, I have never looked back. I can honestly say that the worst day of the last 35 years has been better than the best days of the 41 years that preceded it. Prior to their evening together, Tom Phillips had prayed about how he should talk to Colson. Tom Phillips had never shared the gospel with anybody. It wasn't one of those kind of people that talks about his faith. Tom Phillips was not the kind of guy that says that God talked to him. But Tom Phillips said when he prayed that night, God told him, tell Charles Colson about me. He's going to need a friend. And so in obedience, Tom Phillips shared the gospel. Never before, I don't know how many times since, but I can tell you this, that a little known man in the Christian circles at that point in time shared his faith with a renegade with a man who, well, was despicable and yet changed the course of history. 
Charles Coulson started Prison Fellowship. That's a global ministry that reaches tens of thousands of convicted men and women in 114 countries. Prison Fellowship helps prepare prisoners for reentry into society, works with their families, reaches out through Angel Tree, and helps the church family connect with those who are coming back into society. All because one man followed God's lead. And with that second chance, Charles Colson changed history forever and for thousands. You see, God still finds the Sauls and the Ananiases the Charles Colsons, and the Tom Phillips. Which one are you? Are you listening? Are you ready to respond? Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.